1: For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Your key to financial opportunity. Chapter 3, Part 1, The Land of Misfit Toys. Resuming trial, counsel and the defendant are present, and the jury panel are present. The court, return the prospective jurors, whereupon the following proceedings are held in the hearing of the prospective members of the jury. The court. Be seated, please. Again, ladies and gentlemen, we rearranged our seating just a bit to help us keep track of the order in which you were called up. Miss Ferriera, if you would move over and take Mr. Coher's seat. The bailiff. No, sir. The court. I beg your pardon? She was not seated there? The bailiff. No, sir. Everyone is correct. We're just waiting for Mrs. Melhorn. The court. All right. The prospective jurors are present, and the panel is present, and the counsel and the defendant are present. If you would come forward as the clerk calls your name and have a seat in the jury box. The Clerk Number 94, Nora Fiera Whereupon the prospective juror, Nora Fiera, is duly sworn by the clerk of the court, touching upon voidire examination. The Bailiff Please be seated. Mr. Fuchs. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. If I appear a little slow this morning... It's because my heart hasn't quite started yet. I only had two cups of coffee, and it takes me three to get going. For the new prospective panel member, let me introduce myself. My name is John Fooch, Assistant State Attorney. This is Mr. Gill, the State Attorney, my boss. As the judges told you, and you probably heard from us many, many times over the past two and a half days, this particular part of the trial is called voidire. It means to speak the truth and it's a rare opportunity that you have to participate in the form of question-and-answer sessions and things of that nature. If you have anything that's bothering you about the case, now is the time to speak up. Let me begin by saying that the questions I'm going to ask you are not really designed to try to pry deeply into your private life, but to help us, Mr. Springstead and Mr. Gill and I and Miss Jenkins, to determine what type of juror you might be on this particular type of case. We don't ask these questions out of any real curious need to know, but it does help us in making a determination what kind of juror you might be. Let me make certain I've got your name correct. Miss Ferrari, did I get that correct? Miss Ferrara? Yes, that is correct. Ferrara. did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, you did. Wedmire, that's your fault. Miss Ferrara, I got it that time, I think. The clerk, I'd better go home. Mr. Fooch, I depend on her so much and she lets me down this morning. She's tired too. I'm sure we all are. Miss Ferreira, may I ask you what your occupation is, ma'am? Retired. You are probably working harder now that you are retired than you did when you were actually working, aren't you? No, no way. Then you are truly retired. Right. May I ask what kind of work you did prior to your retirement? Factory worker. What type? International silver in Connecticut. And what was your specific job within that organization? Inspector? Rapper? Packer? Were you with them some long period of time? 36 years and 7 months. Are you married now? Yes, sir. Your husband is retired? Yes, sir. He is retired. What type of work did he do prior to retirement? He was in the same factory, but he was on maintenance. May I ask how long you've lived in Florida? Three and a half years. You came here from Connecticut? Yes. Do you have any children? Two. Miss Ferreira, have you ever served on the jury before? No. Have you ever been summoned for jury duty? No. Ever testified in court or been a witness? No way. Ever seen a trial on television? Well, yes. I'm going to ask you to put all that out of your mind. Because you are not going to see a TV trial here. And I don't think you're going to see any Perry Mason performance. Not by Mr. Gill or myself. Or Miss Jenkins. Certainly not Miss Jenkins. Who is a very attractive female, as you notice. Or Mr. Springstead. Without telling me what you have read or seen or heard, if anything... Have you heard anything about this case or read anything published, news accounts or the like? I read my newspaper very thoroughly. I read everything. And you have been reading it. Yes, ever since you have been down here. Right, two papers a day. I read everything. Then I presume you have read at least one article about this case. More than one. We'll go into that a little bit later. Miss Ferreira, you heard myself and Mr. Gill and Mr. Springstead and Miss Jenkins and Judge Angel and probably the court reporter indicate to the other members of the prospective panel that the possible, and I emphasize possible penalty in this case, could be the death penalty. Some people have very strong emotions about the death penalty, and I need to ask you a few questions to help me determine how you may feel about it. Let me begin by asking you if you favor the death penalty in the appropriate case or whether you are opposed to it. I'm not opposed to it if it calls for it. I take it then that you feel like in an appropriate case. Yes, it might be the appropriate sentence, right? Would that be fair to say? Right. I take it then your feelings concerning the death penalty would not substantially impair your ability to return a verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree. No. In other words, knowing that the potential penalty could be death, notwithstanding that fact, you could return a verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree. Right. You understand the nature of the trial that we're in here? that it is potentially really two parts. The first phase deals with the guilt or innocence, and that requires that the jury render a unanimous verdict, either guilty or not guilty, in the event it's guilty of murder in the first degree. Then we go on to phase two, where the jury would have the opportunity to consider certain aggravating and certain mitigating circumstances, and then would make an advisory recommendation on the sentence to Judge Angel, that need not be unanimous, merely needs to be a majority vote. It could be seven, five, three, twelve. 12, Or any combination of that. Do you have any problem with that procedure? No, I don't think so. Do you feel like you have a fair understanding of how that procedure would work in this particular case? Yes. You still feel you could be fair in this case? I'll try. That's all we can ask of you. Thank you, Ms. Ferreira. Thank you very much. The court. Defense may proceed. Mr. Springstead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Ms. Ferrari? The court. Ms. Ferreira. Mr. Springstead. Ms. Ferreira. Yes. Miss Ferreira, have you ever been in the military? No. Never been in the military before? No way. You all heard me ask questions, I'm sure, earlier in the proceedings addressing certain constitutional rights that the defendant has when he engages in a trial process. One of those rights being, of course, the right to remain silent, which goes along with the burden of proof that we talked about, that under the laws the defendant has no burden whatsoever to prove anything. In pursuant thereto, he doesn't have to say anything at all, at any time during these proceedings. Do you feel at this point in time that this defendant has anything to prove to you? Miss Ferrer, do you feel like he has any burden to prove his innocence, if you will? No. Now, if during the course of these proceedings, certain witnesses are called, either by the state or the defense, and I anticipate there will be a lot of witnesses called, we find ourselves in a situation where an officer of the law has taken the stand in his uniform, Given us a version of the facts as he saw them, and a lay witness comes up, and by the lay witness, I mean a civilian like ourselves, and testifies, and his version of those same facts are a little different, do you feel that you would be automatically predisposed to believe the law officer simply because he is a law enforcement officer, Ms. Ferreira? No. Okay, another one of the points I'd like to hit on, because it deals with our procedures here, because the state has the burden, and we talked about that, We beat that horse a number of times during the course of this void ire. But because the state has the burden to go first, and has the burden of proof in this case, they do go first to present their case. And it's only human in the natural tendency, I guess, to once you hear their side of the story, to maybe formulate an opinion as to what you feel really happened, and what you feel took place. Of course, that's a pitfall that we have to try to avoid, and you as a juror must avoid if you're to carry out your responsibility as you have sworn to do. Because obviously, if you make your mind when you've only heard half the case, then your decision hasn't been justly made. My question is, Miss Ferreira, do you feel like, is that correct, Miss Ferreira? Am I saying your name correct, Miss Ferreira? Do you feel like you can keep an open mind until you have heard all the witnesses and all the evidence, until the judge says, now the case is closed? Yes. And further, do you think that you can keep your mind open and refrain from formulating an opinion one way or the other until after the judge instructs you on the law? So can you give me your assurance that you will refrain from making a final decision in this case until you've heard all the evidence, both sides, and also heard the judge's instructions? Can you give me your assurance, Miss Ferreira? I can. Miss Ferreira? I can. Miss Ferreira? Well, I'm not sure. I have to say that I... That's fine. You can be as candid as you will with us today. If you have any reservations, any hesitations because of any factors involved, something you know, something you've read, or something you just feel, you'll for sure tell us. We'll decide whether or not in this particular case you would be an appropriate juror. That's what we have these proceedings about. So you feel like you may have some problems with that? Yes. Well, um, well, no, sir. You wouldn't have any problem doing that? No, sir. Do you as a new prospective juror understand that this case involves something more than just a straight allegation of first-degree homicide? Do you understand that this case is charged two different ways and that there are two separate and distinct theories of prosecution that the state is going to embark on? One being a straight first-degree murder theory and the other being a felony murder theory. Do you understand first of all that those are two separate theories? Ms. Ferrer, do you understand that? yes. Do you understand that the state must prove one of those theories before you can find my client guilty of anything with regard to those charges? Do you understand the difference between those crimes? One, first-degree murder, being a murder that's carried out with the intent to take a life, and actually then carrying out that intent. Where a felony murder is simply where someone dies while a person is committing a crime, and it does not necessarily mean or follow that they intended for anyone to die. It's just someone that did die during the commission of a felony, of which robbery is one. Do you understand the difference in that? One, there is an intentional taking of a life. And the other, there is just a life lost during the commission of one of these crimes. That's the two different theories. Do you understand the difference? Do you agree with the system we have here in Florida that says all first-degree murder cases are not cases that necessarily require the imposition of the death penalty? Yes, sir. Why do you believe that? This is your opportunity now to tell everybody in this room why you believe that. Well, the man, he has a right to a fair trial. Yes, I think we all agree to that. Well if it's proven otherwise, if there's a reasonable doubt, maybe I didn't make myself clear, let me go back. Do you understand that assuming this jury comes back with a verdict, finding my client guilty of first-degree murder or felony murder, either one of the two, then we go into phase two of the proceedings, wherein you hear certain evidence from the state, from the defense, regarding certain aggravating factors of the case and mitigation factors of the case, and from that evidence you are then required as a juror, if you are picked, to recommend to the judge whether or not he should impose life in prison, or whether or not, he should impose the maximum penalty of death. Now, I realize for you lay people, it's hard to grasp when you first come in here. You may have been here, what, three days now. You see what I'm saying here? There are two distinct classes of first-degree murder. It's hard for lay witnesses to grasp that because you're not used to dealing in these things, and the average person hears the words first-degree murder, and they automatically assume that's the worst there is. But that's not the way the legislature has intended the system to work, and I want to make sure you understand that. Do you understand that, Miss Ferreira? Yes. Do you agree with that? Do you think that's how it should be? Yes. That there should be two distinct classes? Yes. Why do you think there should be? Well, because I feel this way about it, I guess. I mean, you can hear one side of it and hear another side, and you have to weigh between the two sides, right? Miss Ferreira, do you agree to that dichotomy to which the legislature has created within that specific class of crime? Well, not necessarily. What do you mean by that? Well, if it's, if it's a first degree murder, you should have either, you should have a life penalty or a death penalty. But I can't see how they can just set a regulation and say, this makes a crime worse than that other. You don't see how they can arbitrarily do that? No. Let me explain to you something. I want to tell all 12 of you prospective jurors. If you are picked as a juror, and you are sitting in this jury, you are going to have to be called upon to make that decision if you're going to have to draw that arbitrary line, you're going to have to draw that arbitrary line. Can you deal with that, Miss Ferreira? I don't know. Miss Ferreira, can you deal with that? Can you draw the arbitrary line? It's it's gonna be hard. It's gonna be hard. Hmm. How do you say that? Why do you say that? Uh, because I, I just think it will be. You want me to do the right thing, right? That's right. If you're called as a juror, you will have to draw that arbitrary line. Can you do that? If I could have a moment with counsel, Your Honor, you're going to have to draw that arbitrary line. I have no further questions, Your Honor. Mr. Fooch. I've got a couple, Your Honor. The court. Proceed. Mr. Fooch. Miss Ferreira. Do you understand that the advisory recommendation, in the event you find a verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree, is an advisory recommendation, but it's not something that we just dump in your lap and say, you folks go sort it out. The legislature, and I think Mr. Springstead, has touched on that point, but the legislature has given you a roadmap that you can follow. It's not a purely arbitrary decision that we just ask jurors to make in the case. The legislature has set out factors that it says you as jurors can and should consider and use in making your recommendation to the court. It's a very specific list. I think you'll find that it will be very helpful to you in making this decision. Do you have any problem with that Ms. Ferreira? No. Does this make you feel any better? You're gonna be given basically a specific roadmap of things that legally you can consider in determining what you feel as an individual juror and what the jury as a whole feels would be a proper sentence in this case we don't just dump it in your lap and say, here, you folks decide. We give you a guideline. Do you think that would help you make a decision, Miss Ferreira? Yes. Miss Ferreira? Yes. Miss Ferreira? I think I can, but I didn't have that much education. So you think it would help or would not help? I think it would help. You will be given some very specific instructions if it gets to that point, and I think you'll find that it will be helpful to you. It is a difficult decision for you to make as a juror. It's a very heavy, very burdensome decision to make. But like I said, we don't just put it in your lap and say, here's the big jumbled up mess. Now get back there and do the best you can do. We give you a list of things you can consider in helping you to reach this recommendation to the court. Does that clear it up a little bit? Yes. Thank you, Your Honor. The court will counsel approach the bench, and the following proceedings are held out of the hearing with the prospective members of the jury. Interstate 75 is a part of the interstate highway system that runs 471 miles north-south through the state of Florida, making it the longest interstate in the state and also the longest in any state east of the Mississippi River. Beginning in Miami, I-75 heads north before taking a westward route across Alligator Alley through the Everglades, resuming its northward direction in Naples. Running along Florida's Gulf Coast, I-75 passes through Fort Myers, Punta Gorda, Venice, and Sarasota, The freeway then passes through the Tampa Bay area before turning inward toward Ocala, Gainesville, and Lake City before finally leaving the state and entering Georgia. The portion of I-75 from Tampa northward was a part of the original 1955 Interstate Highway plans which was the beginning of a long evolution for Central Florida. February 28, 1983 was a beautiful afternoon in Ocala, Florida. Blue skies had allowed Interstate 75 drivers to see for miles ahead of them. At 2.07 p.m., a Howard Johnson Motor Lodge employee watched as an unknown driver exiting off I-75, tossing his cigarette out the window onto the dry grass just north of US-27. The grass immediately caught fire and spread rapidly, and the employee immediately called the Marion County Fire Department, the Ocala State Banner states that as the fire burned rapidly and a shifting strong wind from the south southwest fanned the flames, dense smoke billowed across the southwest lanes, winds shifted, and the blinding smoke streamed along the southbound lanes. The first speeding car to approach the fire could clearly see the smoke from two miles away as they headed southbound on I-75. As they got closer and closer, they continued heading toward the smoke, believing they would only be blinded for a second, the car slowing to 45 miles per hour when it hit the smoke. A chain reaction started when a second car, which was going 50 miles per hour, struck the rear of the first, and then 20 more vehicles, including a lumber truck and a horse trailer, 14 of which caught fire. As Ocala police arrived at the wall of smoke, they could hear crushing metal and the sound of southbound vehicles slamming into one another. Through blinding smoke, the officers began trying to rescue the victims. That's when Ocala police officer Harvey Armstead heard a man who was removing horses from his trailer, yelling that women were trapped. Stunned by the man's decision to save horses instead of people, Armstrong pulled those women to safety. As he headed back up an embankment to get a third woman, he stepped over a guardrail and an explosion rocked the scene, catching Armstrong's uniform on fire and blowing him over the guardrail. He tumbled down the embankment, which likely saved his life by putting out his burning clothes. Though he was lucky to be alive, he was severely burned over at least 50% of his body. He would go on to spend more than a month in the hospital, getting skin grafts on many of the burns on his hands, legs, shoulders, and back. He had just put his hands over his face at the time of the explosion, and his hands got the worst of it. It made me mad at God, Armstrong would later tell the Ocala State Banner. Here I was helping people, and he did this to me. Since, Armstrong has stated that he continues to hear about multi-vehicle accidents all the time, adding, there really isn't much anyone can do to avoid them. 1985, Ocala, Florida. Throughout the year, county commissioners had wrestled with unpleasant garbage problems widespread allegations of financial mismanagement by the county's volunteer fire department. Mental patient Tommy Lee Woodson opened fire on deputies, sparking a two and a half hour standoff with dozens of law officers. His second shooting of officers in five years, Hurricane Elena dithered in the Gulf for days before parking off Cedar Key and spewed high winds and heavy rains across central Florida, downing trees and power lines in Marion County. And I-75, in the meantime, had allowed crack cocaine to make its debut on Ocala streets, resulting in innumerable knife and gun fights and an almost immediate jump in all types of crime. As addicts and drug dealers went to war, Officer Armstrong had finally decided once and for all that it would be best for his family if he changed professions. Ocala, Florida has a subtropical climate characterized by hot summers, mild winters, and frequent afternoon thunderstorms. The community atmosphere is friendly and is a popular choice for retirees, and there are lots of churches that can be comforting if you're a Christian or intimidating if you are not. Also, the horse capital of the world is a trademark phrase that Alcala owns, and there is good reason for it, as many call it the land of misfit toys. And it's not uncommon to see people walk into the finest restaurants in horse milling boots and jeans. Though Tampa folks refer to the region as Slowcala, a large influx of visitors arrive annually each winter season. They are technically known as Snowbirds, coming from all points north. During this time, many of the nicer restaurants are quite crowded, and downtown bars and nightclubs are busier. There is the Daily Horse Show and the thoroughbred industry as a whole, bringing people down to purchase racing stock from the Ocala Breeders Sale, which has an airport directly across the street for the private planes that fly in from all over the world. This is a country city. In other words, with all the urban amenities, but only taking five minutes to see rolling and beautiful green pastures with miles of blackboard fence, beautiful horses grazing, and the beach only an hour's drive in either direction. Like many central cities, Ocala has varied communities. Retirement, gated with luxe McMansions, newer construction price for working class families, old Florida homes in the historic district, and many trailer parks for the lower classes. However, working in Ocala has long been limited for professionals. Most white collar employment is reserved for the healthcare industry, hospitals, nursing homes, and the like. And while there is the horse industry, there is a reason that the sport of horse racing is referred to as the sport of kings, as you need a king's ransom to afford it. Needless to say, Ocala has been in a state of constant flux for decades, in many, like middle-aged New York transplant, Merle Chet Reader, who had had a profitable career in the Big Apple nightclub industry, settled for a reclusive life in Ocala in a menial job tending register at a local Tinoco racetrack gas station near the College of Central Florida campus. Act Three, Interior, Courtroom, Day. Mr. Gill, the state will call June Tate, Whereupon June Tate is duly sworn by the clerk Mr. Springstead Your Honor, before we get started, could we approach the bench for just a moment? The court Yes Mr. Springstead Uh, never mind, the issue has been resolved, Your Honor Alright, sir Mr. Gill State your name, please June Tate And are you recently married? Yes, sir It was June Lawson As June Lawson, did you work for Tenneco? Yes, sir, I did Drawing your attention back to February 8th, 1985 Where did you work? The Tenneco on 200. Did you know Chet Reader? Yes, sir, I did. Did you work with him? Yes, sir. What shift did you work? Third. In which shift is that, ma'am? 2.30 to 12.30 at night. And what shift did Mr. Reader work? He worked from 12 midnight to 8 the next morning. So he was your relief. Yes, sir. So you would have worked from 2.30 on February the 7th? Yes, sir. Into 12.30 February 8th? Yes, sir. He came on then what? 12? February the 8th, Friday morning. Yes, February the 8th, Friday morning. Do you recall the night of the robbery out there? The night that he was shot? Yes, sir. Did you work that night? Yes, sir. And did he relieve you that night? Yes, sir. What time did he relieve you? He got there right at 12. Was that the normal time he got there? No, sir. He normally got there around 11.30. Was there any reason why you know he was late that night? Yes, sir. He said he had some car problems. Some friends brought him into work. Will you tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury what procedure you used when he checked out and he checked in? Normally, we make up a $50 drawer for the oncoming shift. You have that made up in advance. When he comes in, he counts his money. When it's, uh, when he does all that, you proceed with doing an X reading and a Z reading that clears off the register for the day. What is an X reading and a Z reading? An X reading is a reading from my shift. A Z reading is a reading from the entire day. All three shifts total. You say he has a $50 cash drawer. Yes, sir. And when he starts his shift, he starts with that amount. Yes, with $50. And you push your X and Y buttons or whatever you do. And that clears the cash register. Yes, sir. Do you know if he started with this $50 that night? Yes, sir, he did. What did you do with the money then? Well, you take out the entire drawer. It comes right out of the register. You take it out. You slide in the other drawer. You take the tapes off. You take the drawer off. And you take all your paperwork. And you go to the back office and pre with doing a shift report. Now, each of, I, I guess then, each clerk, each shift would have their own cash drawer. Yes, sir. So while you pulled yours out and worked on it, he would take his... Yes, and he puts his in. Did you have a policy at the store about large bills? What did you do with them? Yes, sir, we did. You dropped them down in a safe deposit. A drop safe. Tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, who may not be familiar with a drop safe, what a drop safe is, ma'am. A drop safe is a safe that usually it's in the floor, and all you have is a little chute. You put the money in an envelope, and you drop it in the slot. The one we had sat under a desk up under the cabinet and that was ours you just drop it down in a little slot and it went down into the bottom and what was the store policy about what bills went in there large bills all your large bills and what was defined as a large bill 50s 100s most 20s as possible we keep very few 20s in our drawer so as soon as possible you took your 20s 50s and 100s yes the procedure was to drop a 100 or 200 in each drop envelope so that when you got up to say 120s you dropped it And what was the purpose of making these direct drops? They didn't want large cash on hand in case of robberies. Do you remember what the weather was that night? It had been raining earlier that evening. Now, when Mr. Reader would come on and work that shift, was he the only one there, the only employee? Yes, sir, he was. What were his normal duties, to your knowledge? Did he have any cleanup duties or did he just stay there behind the... No, sir, we all had cleanup duties. We all had cleanup duties that we all had to do. Stock the cooler, keep the store clean, stuff like that. And generally he was the only person there or that was the way it was supposed to be. Yes, sir. I ask you if you would, if you would step down just a moment. Step down, please step down. I show you what has been identified as States Exhibits 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 12, six, seven, 13, 14, 11, 10, and nine. Drawing your attention first of all to the States Exhibit number 11, a photograph. Will you look at that and see if you can recognize that? Yes, sir. That's his rain jacket. He had it on when he came in. I want you to come around and point out. What are you referring to? Now speak up where they can hear you. He had on a gray or blue jacket. He always hung his jacket right there. And that night he hung his jacket there? Uh huh. And that's his jacket? Mm Mhm. Drawing your attention now to specifically 7 and 6, does that appear to be the man you Yes, it is. The man you know as Chet Reader? Mhm. Sit down, ma'am. What time did you leave the store that night? Was Mr. Reader still alive at that time? Yes, sir, he was. And when you started, w- when you left, he took over his shift? Mm-hmm. He had $50? Yes, sir, he did. Where do you work now? I work at Govan Ice Cream here in Ocala. Okay, thank you, ma'am. No further questions. The court. Just a moment, ma'am. We may have some other questions. Any questions for the defense? Mr. Springstead. Just one second, your honor. No questions of the witness, Your Honor. The court. You may step down. That will be all. Thank you. February 7th, 1985. The sun has set on Ocala and the moon has arisen. The temperature is lingering at 44 degrees with a slight breeze and the skies have cleared on the crisp Central Florida night. 9.30 p.m. Richard Lee Gergish has just finished eating at Waffle House near the I-75 interchange. He exits the restaurant only to be confronted by a man he believes is either drunk or crazy. 10 p.m. Ocala local Dan Clayton visits the nearby Tineco station on State Route 200. He overhears the female attendant talking with another female about a blue and white colored truck that has been driving suspiciously through the area. 11.30 p.m. Ocala State Banner employee, Jermaine Renee Halstead, drives by the Tinico Station with her son to get something to drink and puts gas in the car. She drives up to the far right pump and sees a brown Pontiac facing toward the road. This is an interview conducted by Investigating Officer H.L. Leary. Would you state your full name, please? Jermaine Renee Halstead, and you're employed by the Ocala Star Banner as a carrier and also at Zare's department store. Okay, is that Zare's in Ocala? Yes. Okay, and on Thursday night, the uh, 7th of January, were you... Did you have the occasion to be out on State Road 200 at the Tinico Station? Yes. Okay, can you tell me, um, about what time were you out there the first time? The first time I went by was about 11.30 and I had my son in the car. And we drove into the Tinoco to get something to drink and to put gas in the car. And I drove up to the far right hand pump. And I put $5 worth of gas in the car. You want me to tell you about the car? Okay, did you see any other cars there? Okay, there was a brown Pontiac that was facing the opposite direction as I was. Does that mean that he was pointed towards the road or away from the road? He was pointed towards the road. Okay, gone. And I was pointed away from it. And I went, I, uh, I went in and paid for the gas and I decided to use the restroom. And I went, I got, um, I went into the place and I got the key and I went around back and used the restroom. I come back and brought the girl the key back. What did the girl look like? About five foot six or seven with kinky hair. Okay, go on. But she was white. All right. And, uh, then I went back out and started to pump the gas. And I noticed that the two people that were with the brown car... The older man was pumping gas and the younger man, about 20, was sitting in the car and was real nervous. What'd he look like? He was probably close to five 5'10", 11, had black kind of wavy hair. He was real, real skinny. What about the older man? About 45, maybe 50, about five foot six, brownish hair and glasses. Okay, go on. And then I finished getting the gas and I got in the car and I left the station. Okay, and that was sometime around 11.30 in the evening? Yes, 11.30. Midnight, February 8. Tenneco attendant June Lawson greets Chet Reader as he relieves her for his night shift. 12.30 a.m. Butterfield's restaurant and tavern hostess, Caroline Mueller, gets off work and exits for the parking lot with coworker and friend, Kathy Allen. They observe a white male of average height and weight in a white jacket run from the area of the Tinico station and get into a yellow Volkswagen parked at the Midstate Federal Bank, which leaves rapidly, traveling east on State Route 200. Interior hair pros hairstyling. Investigating officer H. L. Leary, will you state your name, please? Yes, my name is Caroline Mueller. And where do you live? I live in the village of Rainbow Springs. Okay, and, uh, how are you employed? I'm employed at Hair Pro's Hairstyling and at Butterfield's Restaurant. Okay, I understand that you, uh, made an observation that you might, that you feel may be instrumental in this, uh, case that's under investigation. Um, sometime early this morning? Yes, sir. Can you tell me exactly what you were doing, um, uh, what you observed? Yes, sir. Okay, I work at Butterfields at night as a hostess, and uh, when I got off from work, I stayed there for a little while, and then when I was leaving, it was approximately 12.20 am, and I walked out with my friend Kathy Allen, and we were standing out in the parking lot, and she had noticed this strange uh, sight. It was a car parked underneath the overhang where they drive through at the Mid-State Federal Bank. Alright, and there was a car just sitting there, facing Butterfields with the lights on, and we were thinking to ourselves how strange it was for this car to be sitting there at that hour. And there was some, there was a couple, I, I think there was more than one person because we saw some kind of light. I don't know, people running around the car and all of a sudden we saw a guy running from the direction of the tinico I don't know if he was coming from there or what, but he was, he was running from that direction from West to the Mid-State Federal Bank running towards the car. And all of a sudden he jumped into the car and they took off like lightning. Okay, what door did he enter? Uh, I believe he entered the passenger site. Okay, now when you said there was somebody running around the vehicle, was there more than one person at the vehicle? Yeah, it was like happening real fast, so I don't know how many people there was, but it seemed to be that there was one there, like if he was waiting for somebody yeah not inside the vehicle i think he was at first in the passenger side and got out and ran to the driver's side because he saw him and it was hard to see because the headlights were facing us but i saw somebody get out and i believe from the passenger side and ran around to the back of the car to the driver's side and then all of a sudden i see a guy running and hopping in the passenger side i think and then they just shut the door and took off okay did you they took off west west I believe that's, see, that's the thing, I can't remember. I, uh, my problem is that I saw Volkswagen before, that the, the blue one was a friend of mine leaving, and he went west, so I think I'm getting confused. I can't remember if he took off that way or that way. Okay, okay, which way did he go to enter on 200? What entrance on 200 did he take? Um, or exit, I should say. I, I think, I, I really think, if I really think about it, I think he went out, okay, when you You know, when you, you know, when you come out of the drive through, there's a a turn right there. Uh Uh-huh. That road. I think he went through there and then made a left right there. And that little opening that you go onto the street right there. And it's the, I guess he made a left and then he didn't go through the parking lot. Okay. And then he went, I believe to that light right there. And I think he made a right at the light. See, we, well, that would be going East if he made a right turn. Right, exactly. Okay, that's all right. I don't, uh, I want you to tell me what you know, the way you recall it. It was so fast, you know, we were just sitting there like in a daze because I couldn't really understand what was going on. Have you and Kathy had time to discuss this among yourselves? No, not really, because uh, last night I really didn't think, you know, I didn't, I didn't think anything of it, but I just thought it was weird because there was someone parked there. Okay, can you tell me about the person that ran over and that was coming from that, from that area that you were talking about? That area of the Tentico Station, I assume? yeah well it looked at me i couldn't really tell you because it was really dark and like i said the headlights were facing us and it was like kind of blinding but it looked like a tall guy with dark brown hair looked as if he was wearing like jeans or something with a white shirt okay can you estimate any age of this fellow oh it was so far distance he looked like you know he he was more apt to be on the younger side though you know like let's say he had to if i had to estimate maybe in his early 20s Okay, go on. I mean, just from the way he looked at the distance, he, he, you know, I, I can't really judge that, but he appeared. Did you notice anything about the vehicle to be unusual or distinguishing about it when it left? Oh God, let me think. I know for sure it was a yellow Volkswagen that I, that I know. Was it an older or newer model? Or do you know, do you know vehicles well enough to say that? Yeah, I'm pretty good with that, but you know, I, I, I didn't even think about it. I usually do things like that. I even take license plates numbers, but I, I just wasn't, I don't, I don't know if I was thinking about that. Were you close enough to see a license number if you had uh, decided to do that? If I looked real hard, yeah, because I, I have pretty good eyes, but I didn't do it. I didn't even look at it. Plus they took out of there pretty fast stickers, anything like that. Do you remember if the windows were tinted or something? No, no, it definitely, definitely no tinted windows. Definitely not. Yeah, I definitely don't think so, because I I could see them through the window, you know? I saw that there was two guys sitting there, yeah. Definitely a white shirt on one of them, I don't know about the other one. The Volkswagen seemed to be, uh, not new, and not old, like it didn't look raggedy, but it- Now at first there, I might have been a little confused and would just want to make sure I understand you right, but I would like for you to tell me how many people you think there were in the vehicle from the observation that you made. To tell you the honest truth, I even think that there was more than two because when we looked over there at first, my friend had said, okay, we work with some people over there and I work with some people and they were leaving. They were going to go to Papa's. So she at first thought that it was some, that it was my friend parked over there and you know, you're doing who knows what. And then she said, no, that's not just, no, that's not. It's just standing there. or are just sitting there. And then all of a sudden, I don't know. We saw some people like running around the car. I don't know. See, that's where it confuses me because I, I really, I don't, I think there was more than two people. I can't tell. Maybe three, maybe three or so, but they were doing something strange. They were like running around the car, like in a jittery, I don't know. Okay, go on. Well, I'm pretty sure somebody took off from the passenger side and ran around to the driver's side. And I think there might've been somebody in the back seat or something. I can't remember, you know, how Volkswagen's shaped. It's really kind of hard to see if there's someone in the back. Yeah, right. But I I do believe there was definitely more than one person there. Okay, at least two, if not more. You think you'd recognize the person again that you saw running up there? No, God, I don't think so. I I think Kathy might be able to see. She was the one that was really... Kathy is the one that really noticed the car sitting there. I didn't even really notice. I I looked over and I saw her car sitting there, but I didn't even think anything of it. Okay, is there anything else that you can recall? You know, it's really kind of Daisy, you know? You notice that the man running, whether he had anything in his hand or not? Uh, I, I, I really don't know. I don't think so. All right. I mean, I would think that to me, it seemed like I think about it that someone got murdered there. I mean, to me, you know, no one's going to be stupid enough to park over there at the Tenneco. No. So it seems to me that they would park somewhere else and go on foot. But OK, well, if you think of anything else, I'd like you to call us. I'll give you my card. And uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. The time is 1158 a.m. Interior, Florida National Bank, 1124 AM. H.L. Leary, would you state your full name, please? My name is Kathy Lee Allen. You're employed by Florida National Bank? Yes, sir. Okay, uh, I understand from talking to you earlier this morning, you made an observation um, in the parking lot of Mid-State Federal, which is across the street from this bank. um, Is that correct? Yes, sir. Okay, I'd like for you to tell me in order to events what you had seen, what you saw. Okay, we walked outside and because we were just leaving Butterfields and I seen a car sitting over in the Mid-State Federal parking lot had its headlights on and um, we sit there and we keep watching and well some guys came running and got into the passenger side of the car and the car took off. Okay, did you see where this person was running? It looked like he was coming from across the street. Okay, that's where the tentacle station is? Yes sir. He barely had time to shut the door and they were they was gone. Did you see any other person in the vehicle? No sir. Okay, what way did the vehicle leave? It came back out, hit 200 by the light by the mall, and looked like it took off going down Pine Street. Okay, have you ever seen that vehicle before? No sir. Okay, could you describe the vehicle for me in the best details you can? It looked like it was a yellow 69 Volkswagen. 69? Yeah, a 69, it was about a 69 because a friend of mine has one that was about that same year as his. Alright, okay uh, And it had dark, real dark tinted windows And on the back of the window and up in the corner There was, the best I can remember was a, a lightning bolt on it A white lightning bolt? Uh-huh, a white lightning bolt, it was white Alright, um, now about what time is was this again? It was between 12.30 and 1 o'clock Okay, and you're sure about the time? Yes, sir. I'd like you now to describe the person that you saw running to the vehicle. It was a tall white male, about six foot tall, broad shoulders, nice build. He had on a white long sleeve shirt. Looked like he had on blue jeans. He had on a... had shoulder-length hair. It was sort of wavy. It was... okay, light or dark brown? It was a little bit lighter than mine. Dark? Yeah, I guess it would be around medium to dark brown. Okay, all right. Could you tell me whether the person had any facial hair or not? No, I couldn't. Did he appear to be carrying anything? No, he didn't. Do you remember seeing this person before? Uh, no, I don't. Okay, was there anyone else with you other than Caroline? Yeah, there was, um, this guy from Chicago, so I guess he's down here on vacation. Do you know what his name is? All I know is they call him, uh, I don't remember. He introduced himself to us as Salvador or something like that, but he told us to call him Tony. He's supposed to meet me at Butterfields tonight. Supposed to be taking me out so you know if he shows up. 12.30 a.m. Plant workers at Paul Pneumatics, who have changed shifts, observe a yellow Volkswagen outside a complex of townhouse apartments near the Conoco Station. 1.15 a.m. Ocala native 17-year-old Tammy Ortman, having just got off work at Burger King and still wearing her uniform, is driving her car very slowly due to a transmission issue when a police cruiser pulls her over and she pulls into the Tinico station, realizing she needs gas anyway. At the moment, Chet is outside with a broom, sweeping the parking lot to the northwest of the station as the officer pulls in behind her. This is an interview conducted by me, Sergeant A.L. Kretemeyer, with Tammy Ortman at Dunlin High School in respect to homicide case number 8502-1187. Tammy, how old are you? 17. Okay, what's your date of birth? Um, October 16th, 1965. Okay, you might need to speak up just a bit to make sure that we can pick it up on tape, okay? Okay, and what I've asked you here today, uh, whether or not you were stopped by a policeman last night at the Tenico station on State Route 200. And you told me that you were, would you tell me again the circumstances about uh the time you were stopped what the policeman said to you and what you saw at the station uh, it was right after work and it was about 1 like i said and i was going down my car was going real slow because you know the transmission messed up i pulled over to the right lane and i pulled into the tentacle because i had to get some gas and he pulled in behind me and he stopped me and then he said that he thought i was drinking because i was moving real slow so i showed him my license and then he left And then I went in, I paid the clerk, and I went back out, I got gas, and my brother-in-law pulled up, and uh, we talked, and then he was trying to get the guy, he was waving at the guy to give him some, uh, turn on the pumps, and he finally did, the guy never looked this way, he was always looking out the other way, and when he turned on the pump, he never did look this way, and then I left, and then I guess, um, okay, you said it was about 1.15 this morning, right? Yes. And didn't you tell me earlier that when you pulled into the station being stopped by the policeman that, um, somebody was outside sweeping? Yes, sir. All right. and was it the clerk that was outside sweeping? yeah um i'm positive that it was him okay would you describe him to me the best you can he was probably i think he was about my height about five nine or so and he's he's older an older man he's got like gray hair but it's all mixed you know like like it's just growing out gray brown or gray you know black and stuff and he has a beard and a mustache he was wearing a cap you recall what um what shirt or jacket he was wearing no it was really it was really old or maybe like a sweater type i'm not really sure it was rough looking do you know if he wore glasses or not no, I don't, I don't think he wore glasses. I don't remember. Okay, that man was outside sweeping. Yeah, and then when I pulled up, he walked in, and then I went in and paid. Okay, and you left before Rudy did? Yes. And Rudy is your brother-in-law? Yes. Okay, and he lives at the same address you live at? Yeah. You saw... You seen anyone else around the station? No, after the cop left, all I saw was Rudy pull up, and that was it. And then I left. 1.30 a.m. A 40-year-old white male and sweet corn farmer known simply as Al, an Ohio transplant who has been in the Ocala area for a couple of years, arrives from the KO campground where he resides to the Tinoco Station to see two black males and one black female, each 40 to 50 years of age, who he believes are acting suspiciously. He pays close attention as the female sets a large purse that she had been carrying on the counter in the station. As Al exits, he gets into his spotless tan Mazda truck with a fiberglass topper and a black pipe bumper which obscures his own plate and writes down the Marion County tag number of the vehicle of the black trio, 417AE. In this description, a 1976, Oldsmobile, brown in color. Al now proceeds south down I-75 toward Tampa. 1.35 a.m. Having taken her son home, Jermaine Halstead decides she needs more gas before leaving town, and having passed the Tinico station, does a U-turn to return for fuel. Interior Ocala Police Department. Investigating Officer H. L. Leary. Would you state your full name, please? Jermaine Renee Halstead. Okay, when did you come back? Okay, I went home and I took my son home and then about one o'clock in the morning when I left the house and I thought I had enough gas to go on and into town, but after I passed the station, I had to turn around and get gas and I saw the clock and I knew I was going to be late. What clock did you see? The bank clock, the digital one, that's the, the one on the left-hand side of the road as you're going into Ocala. Alright, and it said that it was 1.35, so I wheeled around in the break-in and the median and I went in to get gas. What, what gas pump did you pull up to? Um, side closest to town or the side away from town? The side closest to town. Yeah. But on the side of the pump that was the closest to the station. Okay, was it the first, um, the first coming in off the road? The one with the blue handle? The one with the blue handle. Okay. So I went in, I got out of the car, and I went in and I laid the money on the counter and I turned around to walk out. And then I went back and asked him for the key to the bathroom. Okay, now at that time, um, uh, which clerk was on? The older man. You'd know him if you saw him or saw a picture of him? Uh Uh-huh. Is there anything more about him other than being, well, he was shorter than me and smaller build maybe. Facial hair? Kind of scraggly looking. I, I don't know if I can describe it. Kind of like somebody who only shaved sometimes but didn't want a beard either. Okay, alright, um, okay. So you went to the restroom and then after that. I went to the restroom and around the back of the building and I, I stuck the key in and in the lock and I heard a noise. And I looked and there was a brown car parked behind the building with a man in it. And so I hurried up and I went into the bathroom because it was dark outside, still dark. I I hurried up, I used the restroom, I came out and I peeked around the doors. And as as I come out of the bathroom um, to see if that man was still there or not, and the car was still there and he was still there in it. So I, I went around the building and I went in and I handed him the key. And then I went out and got gas, got in my car. And as I drove around the building, the car was still there. He didn't have any lights on. Do you remember anything more about the car um it looked like there was a real shiny sticker in the back window glass um uh what would be the driver's side now i know you um you described this older man that was there earlier in the brown car um is there uh do you feel like there's a tie between those two people or there might be the same or there might be a tie between those two people the hair was the same the hair was about the same color Uh uh-huh this man that you saw sitting in the car had about the same, um, length of hair? Uh-huh, cut real short, and he wouldn't look. He just kept turning his head and looking out towards the woods. Did you look at the rear of the car after you passed it? When I walked past that, I looked at the rear window and all, but all you could see is the light that was shining right on the front of the car. Did you notice what kind of car it was? It's a Pontiac. Okay, now did you notice anything else about the vehicle color? Well, it was lightish brown and medium brown. Alright, about how long you think you were there in the station after, um... Well let me ask you this, to estimate your approximate time from the time you saw the clock at the bank, which is about maybe two blocks away at most, until you left the station, how much time do you think went by? Probably about 10 minutes from the time I saw the clock and... drive back down to the station, pump the gas and went to the bathroom, went and drove around the building and left again. Alright, now we're moving on to something else. Um, Chet, the attendant there, and possibly a helper that may or may not have been working for the station. Prior to this evening going there, um, what was the last time before that that you were at the station? How long? I go in there about every day. Okay, you remember the last time that you saw someone else that uh, appeared to be working there other than Chet or with him? It was about two or three days before that, and there was this guy that was there um, with him most of the time. Okay, can you describe him? About six foot, brown hair, about 30, 31 years old well-built. His hair was shorter type and it was parted on the side. Did he have a mustache or a beard? No. He ever mentioned his name? He never said a word. Did you ever see him behind the counter? Yeah, he was behind the counter every time I was there and every time I saw him in there. Did Chet have anything to say about that? Well, one time I said something to him about it. I said to him, it looks like you have a little bit of help. And he said, yeah. He said, everybody needs a little help every once in a while, but he wasn't in there with him that night. Okay. Uh, I'll conclude this interview statement. Interior courtroom. Mr. Springstead. I'm not trying to embarrass you. You said it was cold. Did you have a jacket on? Yes. A heavy jacket? It was a blue, it was a man's jacket, hung down below my waist. So you had to remove that before you went to the bathroom. No. You just sort of pulled it around you, huh? Embarrassed, the witness nods her head yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Then after you went into the restroom, you brought the key back in, I assume. Yes. And did you see anyone else at the station while you were there? There was a man behind the counter with Mr. Reader. I had seen him before when I had gone through there several times. Is the man that was in the station in this courtroom today, doesn't look like it, no. Okay, so in other words, you pulled up, you parked at the pump, right? You went inside and paid $5 worth of gas, right? Then you came back outside, pumped the gas, and then went back inside, got the key to the restroom, right? Then went to the restroom, uh uh-huh, came back around and gave the key back to the clerk, and the other man was still inside the store when you left, uh uh-huh. No further questions. Mr. Fooch. The individual that you earlier testified was in the station. Mm-hmm. With Mr. Reader. You knew him to be a friend of Mr. Reader's, didn't you? He had been in there several times when I had been in there. On other nights? Mm-hmm. Mr. Reader didn't appear to be nervous or apprehensive about him being in there at all? No, he was behind the counter with him. You didn't see any kind of weapon in his hand or anything? No, sir. On how many different occasions had you seen him in there prior to this particular evening? At least two or three. And you had seen him in there earlier this night as well, had you not? Uh Uh-huh. Because I believe you testified earlier. You had been by the station twice, right? right? And this individual was in there both times? Uh Uh-huh. And Mr. Reeder was in there both times? Uh Uh-huh. Was he alive on both occasions when you saw him in the early morning hours of February the 8th, 1985? Yes, sir. No further questions, Your Honor. 1.45 a.m. Christopher Gulick and his buddy Luke Borges have left Papa's Tavern, driving a van on his way to Butterfield's Tavern, where he works, but has decided to stop for a pack of cigarettes along the way. As he pulls into the Tinico station, he doesn't see any other cars getting gas or anyone else there. As he opens the door to the station and enters, he sees a case of Stroh's light beer bottles on the floor by the counter, smashed, busted, and beer pooling up. He says aloud to the attendant, someone throwed a six-pack here, but he hears no answer in return. As he waits, he shouts, hello? But again, no one answers. And again, he waits. Again, he says hello. And when again, no one answers, Christopher almost instinctually looks over the counter between a sunglass display and a rack of candy and sees that old man who always tends to register late at night, lying on the floor in a pool of blood. In shock and not knowing what to do, Christopher turns around, exits, and gets back into his van where his friend Luke awaits. He says to Luke with a stutter, there is a man in there who is dead, we need to go across the street and call. Confused but believing of his pale-faced buddy, Luke steps out of the van and walks to the window of the station. Luke sees the bloody body on the floor, clutching a single dollar bill in his right hand. Luke glances to the left and to the right, but sees no one as he enters the store. Once inside, Luke first thinks to check his watch, which reads precisely 10 until 2 a.m. Going behind the counter, Luke sees the change drawer has been left open. The plastic insert has been pulled out and emptied of cash. He takes another good look at the old man, who has been brutally shot in the face. And he grows hysterical and doesn't know what to do first. He runs back out to the van, afraid they may be in danger as well. And Christopher punches it out of the parking lot passing a young blonde woman in a dark sweater who takes no notice at all as she walks past. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic, Season 2. Death rides the highway, a thrill ride fueled by murder and terror. Think, feel, and understand the world around you with Spooner River Gothic Podcast because we go where the others don't. We dive deeper. And if you want to plunge even deeper into our true crime tales, please subscribe to Spoon River Gothic Agency. That's S-R-G Agency at www.patreon.com slash Podcast, And access the Spoon River Gothic Podcast case file for bonus weekly episodes available on Spotify. And also included in the Patreon case file are investigative materials such as exclusive audio interviews, trial footage, police files, court documents, photos, diagrams, and more to accompany each Season 2 episode of Death Rides the Highway. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a 5-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It means more than you know in this cutthroat world. And until next time, work hard, party hard, keep a vigilant eye over your shoulder, and don't forget to watch each other's backs. This is a sideways world we are living in. And again, that's www.patreon.com slash spoon gothic podcast subscribe now because there's always more to the story
0: ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet for anyone to see more than you think Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, and even information about your family members is all being compiled by data brokers and sold to the highest bidders online. That means anyone on the web, criminal or investigator, can get your private details, which, as true crime enthusiasts know all too well, increases your risk of identity theft, phishing scams, harassment, stalking, and unwanted phone calls. As a podcast that exists publicly and shares our opinions online, we are hyper aware of safety and security, and all this data being so easily searchable on the internet can have real-life consequences. This is why Spoon Ripper Gothic is proud to partner with Delete Me, the number one service in online data removal. Delete Me finds and removes any information you don't want online and makes sure it stays off. Their dedicated team finds and removes your personal info from the largest people search databases and helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, stalking, and phishing scams in the process. That's why I personally recommend Delete Me for protecting yourself and your personal information. Sign up at joindeletemecom spoonriver and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. As part of their subscription service, you will even receive personalized privacy reports showing what they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Their experts are always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want accessible online. To put it simply, Delete Me does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal info off the web and making your personal profile no longer anyone's to sell. So join us at DeleteMe.com-SpoonRiver because no one wants to be a victim nor a suspect. So get protected and the next time a case hits too close to home, you won't find yourself asking the stranger on the other end of the phone, how did you get my number? Go to JoinDeleteMe.com-SpoonRiver and get started today.
1: Death rides the highway.
0: 18 plus.